So today we have with us Jamie Bristow. Um, I've had the pleasure to work with Jamie. He's, he's waving. And um, yeah, so Jamie is the co-director of the Mindfulness Initiative, which is, as far as, as we know, the only mindfulness policy institute in the world. Um, and Jamie has this wonderful gift, which is that he can kind of sense where the mindfulness field is going and is very good at articulating and um, providing a framework of understanding and also research for some of the things that you know other people in the field we might be intuitively feeling but don't have the language for and so um, the reports that he that he and the mindfulness initiative have been putting out over the past i think 10 years or so um, i think it really impacted the way we think about mindfulness and i know that personally um, my understanding of mindfulness has been hugely kind of influenced by um, jamie's thinking and his work so I think it's really great that he's here, and I think the topic of his um, of the Mindfulness Initiative's latest report is very timely um, to our times. So before I hand over to Jamie, I just wanted to say a word about um, and of how how we'll be working via chat. So the invitation is: if you have questions throughout uh, this the session, you're welcome to write them in the chat. And I'll be kind of collecting them, um, and we'll get we'll try to get to them at the end of the of Jamie's talk. We ask that as far as best you can not to kind of enter into a conversation in the chat, just to kind of leave the questions there so that we can um, all go through them together at the end. And you know, there's not so much going on in the chat. Lovely to to see all these hellos from um, people from many different places. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Jamie. Thank you for joining us, Jamie. Thank you so much, Pilar, and good evening, everybody, or good day, wherever you are. Um, it's a real, real pleasure, real honor to be speaking to you. And lovely to see some old friends as well. So hello, hello to you. Let's start off the session today. I'm gonna be giving you quite a lot of information, some conceptual frameworks. We're gonna be a little bit up here. Um, so whilst, whilst I'm doing that, perhaps including also the body um, and a sense of presence, um, listening to yourself and how you know your mind, body, heart system is responding to what I have to say. So in order to sort of move into this listening mode as a, as a mode of practice, let's, let's just spend a minute or two together um, in more formal practice. So adopting a posture that is relaxed, but also upright and awake. Tuning into the body as an anchor to the present moment. Feel free to close your eyes or leave them open with a soft gaze turned down, perhaps. Feel free to tune into whatever, whatever anchor you normally use, the feeling of the, the sit bones in the chair, perhaps, feet on the floor. But if it's helpful to you tuning in for a moment to the breath, the rise and fall, expansion, 
and falling away of the breath. Spending a moment to gather the mind into these sensations. Perhaps feeling how much of the body is involved in the breathing. The chest, the back, the throat, the head. Expanding the awareness to a sense of the whole body, perhaps, sitting here breathing. Our lower body in the chair, like the lower slopes of a mountain or the roots of a tree, rising up with the breath to the torso, to the head, to the limbs, the whole body breathing. And when you're ready, letting go of the practice, coming back to the Zoom, Zoom room together, but not letting go of the awareness and the body as, a, as an anchor. Yeah. If you wish. All right. Lovely to practice with you all. So thank you for the introduction, Pilar. I'm going to give a little bit of a background as to um, what the mindfulness initiative is that I've been running. So apologies to those of you who heard, heard this before, I'll keep that brief, but it's sort of a helpful background to understand the work that we've been doing over the last five or six years. As Pilar said, to, to think about mindfulness in society and to broaden our lens for how we consider this practice, this foundational human capacity, um, uh, consider it, you know, how we consider its impact and um, the purpose of, of, of practice. So hopefully I can share my screen. Yeah, well done. All right. I'm not on my right slide, however. Okay. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is, can I get a thumbs up from Pilar or from anyone else? Yeah, great. So what we're going to talk about today are the, um, what we're going to get to eventually are the concepts of agency and connection. So this is our capacity for intentional action and, and, uh, the co and conscious connection with ourselves, each other and with nature. And we're going to look at how these things are foundational 
really important to meeting the crises that we are currently facing. But first, we're going to look at um, mindfulness in politics and public policy. The question of why we practice in the first place, you know, why mindfulness is important and why we should bother cultivating it before looking at these two, these two, um, uh, yeah, these two areas. So firstly, I was one of a number of volunteers and experts, including a number of people from the Oxford Mindfulness Centre here, Mark Williams, Chris Cullen, uh, Willem Kuyken, um, to help politicians to form an all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness and conduct a, an inquiry into how mindfulness could be helpful in different areas of public policy. This all-party parliamentary group came out of a, a, a practice programme in the British Parliament, um, which has been running since 2013. Uh, and, and politicians found these courses, this practice transformative, and started to think, uh, uh, you know, these are gifts of the mind and the body, and these should be taught to everybody. How do, how do we do that? And so we, we, um, we explored the, yeah, the, the policy behind that. Through, um, through a series of uh, hearings in, you know, oak-panelled oak rooms and... Uh, uh, it was um, yeah quite a quite a, a quite a thing, and put the findings together into uh, the Mindful Nation UK report, now kind of a seminal publication out in 2015 that you can find on our website, themindfulnessinitiative.org. We looked at healthcare, education, whether well, workplace and criminal justice, making you know, assessing the evidence, assessing the state of implementation, and the current pu public policy concerns synthesizing those and making recommendations for ministers. But that was, uh, that's where we started out. And actually over the last seven years, we've continued to inquire into new areas. Um, we've, we, we did a big uh, meeting for politicians around the world in Westminster, 40 politicians from 14 countries, spreading, um, uh, introducing mindfulness to parliaments around the world and creating a number of resources, including here, the field book for mindfulness innovators. If you've got any, anyone out there adapting or uh, using mindfulness in innovative ways, that's a resource for you. Um, and also more recently, uh, a field book for implementing mindfulness in schools, uh, an evidence-based guide. So these are all free resources that you can find on our website. That's the background. Now, uh, we'll turn to the why of mindfulness. Um, and I think many of us who have been involved in advocating mindfulness in society, we've often had a, a great passion for it because we have an intu intuition that this is something deeply important. But, uh, and as I did, as I've come to explain, um, I left a climate change campaign 12 years ago to work in the mindfulness field because I thought that was you know, a missing piece. But I found myself with that bigger ambition, that bigger why for developing these capacities of heart and mind, a bigger why. But I found myself talking to ministers within a framework that was, had a clinical focus. It was largely about health and well-being. And uh, it was somewhat instrumental that there was a problem that ministers had. Um, you know, uh, important problems, um, problems that we should definitely work to address. But that the only way we could get in the door with ministers, with our recommendations and our reports, was to find an ouch that they had 
a pain point, you know, something they wanted fixing. And we had to go, okay, so they, they want, we, we want to talk about mindfulness to lots of people. So we've got to go to this person and talk to them specifically about rates of depression or specifically about well-being in, in schools. So, so to some extent, you know, that's because the evidence base required it. And that's because policy, the policy context required us to, to, to do this. Um, but yet there was something being missed with all of these different applications, uh, these siloed policy concerns, these sort of fragmented evidence base, there was the bigger picture was being missed. And so, um, and so, uh, but, but, you know, it's been being missed in our conversations about the role of mindfulness in society, but not missed, of course, by people like John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, and other advocates uh, who, who in the foreword to the Mindful Nation UK report said that, um, you know, these practices can address some of the most pressing problems at their very root, at the level of the um, human mind and heart. And some, this wasn't missed on some politicians either. Many of the politicians, when we put together the Mindful Nation UK report, they said this has to be credible. You know, you've got to build a platform here. So that we don't look like we're just sort of this is wishful thinking um, and woolly stuff. It needs to be costed. It needs to be, you know, very um, straightforward. But some politicians wanted to go further. They wanted to speak in visionary terms from the very beginning. And one of these was a, a Labour MP called John Crudders, who wrote the Labour Party 2015 manifesto. And in a, in a meeting around 2016, anyway, he said, um, I can see that mindfulness could act as a foundational proposition to a whole series of public policy interventions over and above the obvious ones in terms of health. Now, this was an interesting phrase. What does he mean by this foundational proposition? I mean, I intuitively got what he meant, but how could we give John and other politicians and advocates like him within these mainstream traditional contexts, the language to speak in more visionary terms, to talk about foundational, this is being foundational, somehow this is sort of cross-sectoral and something about, you know, uh, more than just this problem here and this problem there. So we set off in 2016 or so, um, to to create this new story and a, and a framework to understand all of this fra you know fragmented evidence base um in a in a narrative because it's narratives that make make the difference in politics and in policy you know the a good story trumps a, a big stack of research papers sadly um so so the the story that we wanted to tell is of mindfulness being a foundational capacity. And if it becomes a foundational capacity, it becomes um, as, you know, in the way in the workplace, it's moved from health and well-being in some cases to learning and development. The budgets are much bigger in learning and development. It's a much more important organizational priority in many cases because you're starting to see, oh, there are, there are capacities that we need in order to, to, to flourish, to, to be successful, rather than just, oh, that's, you know, um, unfortunately, the, the, the well-being function is, is sometimes seen as a bit um, a nice to have or peripheral. Now, I can tell you that this message has got through 
in some places. I was in a meeting last year. We were launching mindfulness training in the European Parliament. And the head of European training for all of the EU institutions, Commission, Council, Parliament, said to us, mindfulness is a foundational capacity. And, uh, uh, and one of the trainers who's been involved in that program, um, uh, Chris Tamjidi, he said afterwards, you do realize, Jamie, that the reason they said that is because of your work, because you're getting these messages out there and helping to give them a framework. So sort of cutting to the, cutting to the, uh, the end point here, that this is actually having some, some impact. We are hearing this language come back to us. Okay. Um, I skipped forward a little bit there, but let's let's. Uh, so, so if this is a foundational capacity, what's the most important thing that's going on that means that we need to develop our foundational capacities as human beings right now? Well, I really, um, I really found helpful the work of the social philosopher Thomas Bjorkman, and he's he's coined this phrase, or at least he's one of the people talking using the phrase of the meta crisis. In fact, the Guardian last week uh, had big leader um, about the perma crisis. So whether it's the, me the meta crisis or the sense making crisis or the perma crisis, there's a sense that there are interconnected things going wrong and that they have some kind of, uh, they have some root causes that are similar and they interrelate with each other and make, it, make, make them worse. So, for instance, there's there's a crisis in politics. There's a crisis in our information ecosystem. The way our media works, the way social media works, interrelating with our you know, ecological crises. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So he says that that's that the thing underlying this crisis is our collective inability to handle the increasing complexity of our world. Um, and this is, he's pointing towards here, our collective inability, both in terms of systems, but also in terms of our individual human ability to handle complexity on average across society. Another uh, political theorist, Indra Adnan, she points to this idea of agency being important. For her, everything is an inquiry into agency. What is the human being? What is power? Who has it? How do we develop it? And again, she really points to not just political power, structural power, group power, but individual cognitive and emotional capacities that give us the ability to act within this complexity and, 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 and sort of instability of the 21st century. So with this context, we developed a narrative around mindfulness as supporting us to act intentionally, individually and collectively. And we call this developing agency in urgent times. And we published uh, in uh, 2020, um, about 18 months ago, a document called Mindfulness Developing Agency in Urgent Times. And this was split into three, three areas. So we looked at you know, what is action? What is agency? This is a more, you know, compared to the next one that I'll go on to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer you two frameworks here. This is, you know, um, and. It, in order to do so, I'm gonna to have to do it at quite a high level and not go into too much detail. Um, but what's important here is the kind of the, the narrative arc or the meta story rather than the, I'm not gonna go through the individual evidence and the detail in this particular talk. It's more about storytelling and our understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and why it's important for society. So mindfulness developing agency in urgent times, we looked at, okay, so if we're struggling 
as a society to act wisely with um, so, um, uh, what uh, and we're struggling with this ability for intentional action what are the domains of agency um i don't know whether i've been entirely clear but agency is intentional action in our in our in our definition so we have three domains here we have um how we perceive the world the, the kind of um Oh, no, okay, so here's, here's, here's the kind of thesis. Multiple interconnected crises for skillful responses on a global scale. Um, sorry, cool. I'll start again. Mind of multiple interconnected crises call for skillful response on a global scale, but our capacity for intentional action and our collective best interest is underdeveloped and increasingly undermined. Evidence-based mindfulness training can act to support individual and collective agency. Beyond a nice-to-have well-being benefit in the workplace or an alternative to prescription drugs, as important as those things are, the innate capacity of mindfulness could be foundational in responding to the complex challenges of the 21st century. So we break down um, uh, the concept of agency into three domains. The first one is perception. And so we tend to think that, um, well, you may not, if you've been studying how your own mind works and the limitations of our attention, etc. But the kind of the folk assumption tends to be, you know, we see the world as it is, like what we what we perceive is is true, and that's it. Um, what we think is the fact is facts about the world. You know, that's just how it is, and we tend to think that we um, we do what we want, that we have control over our our, our behavior. That is. Um, the folk assumption, anyway, that we we we, we sensed. However, in this document, we we point out a number of the ways that we are. This is these functions are derailed from within and from without. From from sort of our ancient evolutionary inheritance that has is riddled with biases and autopilot and you know various things that cause cause issues, and also the world that we've created for ourselves make that even worse. Social media has become in the spotlight in the last year or two with the documentary um, A Social Dilemma and various other um, critiques, for instance. So within the domain of a, um, perception, we show how attention is susceptible to hijack and sold to the highest bidder, exploited for profit. We look at how what we see, well, <clears throat> we see what we expect to see, and that this is intensified by the filter bubble of social media or you know, digital media in general. And overwhelm and stress lead us to perceive less and to hold less in mind that actually our cognitive capacities get eroded to the extent that we struggle to keep, uh, yeah, keep things in perspective. Our second domain of agency we looked at is both kind of beyond receiving and processing the world, it's then making sense of the world, developing understanding. So in this second domain, we show that our Verbal conceptual mode of mind tends to chunk the world into bits and we miss the whole. The alternative being holistic intuitive mode of mind, which is associated with mindfulness. Um, and that our, that our world kind of exaggerates this verbal conceptual kind of missing the wood from the trees. We look at how um, there's a loss of faith in public forms of truth and the information ecology is polluted by Russia, for instance very, very uh, intentionally over the last six or seven years. And black and white thinking and polarization, a tendency towards it has got much worse over the last 30 to 40 years. Um, and, and this leads to, uh, and, and then this kind of, 
this tendency is unequal to the complexity of the world that we're in. The third domain that we look at of agency is action. And we show that our aspirations constantly do battle with impulses and habits. And that in, uh, in complex groups that we rely on in order to act collectively to our greatest challenges, our emotional systems interact unpredictably um, and you know we, str we struggle to get to you know get get on and, and work together at the best of times uh, let alone across political divides that we need to in order to for instance meet climate change um, and finally technology can aid collaboration but it can also increase conflict and fragmentation so within these three domains of agency we thread through this siloed evidence base for mindfulness um, into these different domains so within perceiving, gathering and processing information, we look at particularly the, the role of mindfulness in helping us to reclaim our attention, to broaden the bandwidth of awareness, because mindfulness isn't just attention training, it is developing awareness that is open, curious and kind. And these, in, these in, implicit qualities, important qualities, work together to make us sort of more receptive, particularly to um, new and challenging information and helps us to build resilience cognitive resilience, uh, but I won't go into that. In the domain of understanding, we look at that holistic intuitive mode of mind and the verbal conceptual mode of mind and how those can work together better. We look at perspective taking, which mindfulness is, is, is associated with, and we look at um, connecting to values, acting more in line with our values and acting collectively. Sorry, making sense together. And then finally, in, our, in, our, in, in the domain most you know, often associated with intentional action, the actual doing, we show you know, Mindfulness 101, autopilot, responding, not reacting, how we can step out of sort of habits and impulses to live on purpose more of the time. And then we address this sort of uh, knotty problem of you know being mode versus doing mode and actually is it possible to be being whilst you're doing and how how, how vital that is because in the words of um nigerian philosopher bio akamalofe the times are urgent so let us slow down which apparently is after an african proverb and so we need to make the case that actually being sort of headless and mindless and going as fast as possible in the tortoise and the hare analogy perhaps isn't always the most speedy in the long run. And finally, we look at collaborating better, how mindfulness can help us to regulate anger um, uh, and aggression and improve our empathy and, and compassion, etc. So all together, uh, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, I've pretty much gone through this. The, I was gonna give you these as, as, as examples, but um, I need to kind of move on, I think. So this got, went down very well. Um, John Kabat-Zinn called it um, a tour de force. Uh, Ronan Harrington, who's a, a sort of influential social change thinker, said if anyone wanted a thoughtful introduction to the importance of interchange, of, uh, importance of interchange, the problems of the world, this is it. And my favorite was uh, a, a mindfulness leader, um, uh, teacher and advocate in South Africa, who said um, it was like reading a, 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 a beautifully crafted uh, an articulate reflection of my own seen and hidden highest thoughts and feelings. Now, the, um, the reason why I'm particularly thrilled about that is because that was basically the task that we set ourselves. How can we put flesh on the bones of people's intuitions? Like many of you may have 
felt already like you know there's something else here than than just a you know 32 percent reduction in anxiety symptoms or what you know the kind of thing that evidence base says um and and so yeah we had intuitions how do we get a framework how do we make it robust so there's a, there's a reference scientific reference in every line that that can um yeah put this together so that's where we got to maybe that's where i we got to last time i told you about our work if i've uh, yeah if you've heard me speak before um but that was a discussion paper it was a kind of new development for us anyway and we put it out there as a discussion paper and we asked people to respond and we actually supported people to respond through a nsa competition and we we launched um at the beginning of last year this document uh, responding to mindfulness developing agency in urgent times and there are 11 really uh, great essays worth your worth your attention uh, there uh, building um you know pointing out things that were uh, that, that were missing or developing ideas um and so so yeah i'd really i'd really commend those uh, those essays to you which you can find on our on our website all right let's take a take a, a a beat there for a moment um as i jump uh, tone for a second so we're going to come back to the story the why again um and we're going to tell a different story this time with a different framework but with much of the same evidence base and we're going to expand it now to include compassion as a as a separate vital capacity human natural human capacity that we can train in in our first document we mentioned compassion but we did it all through the lens of mindfulness and talked about how compassion and care were really so closely linked and you know vital um intrinsic components of mindfulness in our latest work we have we felt that the, the stage of the policy conversation is such that we can actually start talking about compassion much more explicitly. The evidence based for compassion training is also more developed. And so now and in, and in the future, we are going to be talking about mindfulness and compassion much more. The mindfulness initiative that I run which is, a, is a charity. And when we enshrined as a charity in 2018, we enshrined as, a, as an education charity about mindfulness and compassion. We, we knew back then that this was, you know, the way it was going, the way it needed to be. It's all been somewhat about what is skillful, particularly when you're speaking to policymakers. So our next piece of work expands in that direction to compassion. And it narrows a little bit as well in terms of our focus of the problem statement. So rather than looking at the meta crisis, our collective inability to solve our, our most intractable problems and, and, and to act, um it seems uh we look at the climate crisis in particular to expand to compassion and we narrow down to the climate crisis um and we do it with more confidence this piece of work we we have just yesterday published a report it's a policy report with recommendations this time that are going to go to policymakers and we're going to say we think you should actually act on act on this partly because of the success of the previous document and, uh, and have a very positive response to that. But also the evidence base continues to strengthen and our research partnership, partnerships that we've developed um, have helped us to do so. 
There's also a personal element to this story, as I alluded to earlier. So 12 years ago, I was working in a climate change campaign and I became disillusioned with what I was doing there, as many were at that time, because we were abandoning what is called, what has been called the information deficit hypothesis of climate change communications. And that is this idea that maybe if we just tell people more facts, we give them more information, that'll elicit um, change in behavior and att political attitudes, and we'll just, you know, we'll solve the situation. That was broadly what, you know, the climate movement was, uh, misunderstanding that the climate movement was laboring under until, you know, uh, 2008, 2009, but certainly by 2010, when I left my climate change campaign, um, I abandoned it as well. And I thought to myself, um, why did I suddenly join a climate change campaign, having been working in advertising for many years um, and thinking that that was a totally fine thing to do, uh, making adverts for SUVs? Um, and I realized it was my mindfulness practice that meant that I developed greater awareness, sensitivity and care. And the same facts about climate change landed in, in different soil, more fertile soil, soil, a more receptive heart mind. That was my understanding of myself anyway. And I, at that point, had this broad intuition that meditating, you know, mindfulness was a missing part. The inner dimension of the climate crisis seemed to be completely missing in general, and that I wanted to do something about that. So that's been my driving, my driving um, ambition for the last 12 years. And finally, yesterday, I actually managed to, you know, publish something directly on that, that subject. So today, um, so now I'm going to just introduce you to another story. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish off with, uh, with some questions. Again, I'm going to keep this top line because I realized, you know, two different frameworks is, is, uh, is, is ambitious. So what's, what's this story? Well, um, we, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the kind of the most, the biggest why is this existential threat of the climate crisis. Since 1970, 67% of all species have become extinct. We have years, a handful of years, to avert the kind of ecological collapse which might put our own civilizations uh, at risk of collapse. And, you know, it's a, it's a real possibility that tipping points will put us beyond the possibility that we will even survive as a species. There is no bigger challenge that we face. Um, but it is one that we can rise to, but we need everything that we can. <laughs> we, know we need everything going for us. And that includes um capacities of heart and mind that make us more equal to understanding the problem to working together for collective solutions so this is the context that we start um this next this next story apologies for the heavy 
<laughs> the heavy stats, but it's some, it is helpful, I think, just to remind ourselves. We can we can go, yeah, yeah, catastrophe, yeah, climate, but this, you know, this is where we are. So we embarked uh, in over the last two years on a new project involving extensive research and collaboration, particularly with Professor Christian Ramsler at the University Lund University Center for Sustainability Studies. We conducted 26 in-depth interviews with politicians and policymakers and a much wider consultation amongst experts who were working at the inner dimension of sustainability. And we wanted to understand how politicians and policymakers perceive the interconnection of mind and climate change and how it's currently considered in policymaking, how it could be further considered in policymaking. And, and the result of this work has, um, is, is being published as an as a academic research article. The article documents the four different ways in which the mind is considered by policymakers, if it's considered at all. And we went to those that are most likely to consider it or have already talked about it. Vast majority of people working in the space, they see mind, uh, and climate change as a technical problem sort of out there with external solutions. But those who are a bit more reflective, they, well, I mean, most commonly policymakers see the mind as a victim of climate change. And it's difficult to ignore now with evidence showing how, um, how the youth particularly are really impacted. That the mind is the, um, but some look at the mind as a root cause of the climate change, particularly our misunderstandings about where happiness lies, you know, driving consumerism, that kind of thing. The mind is a barrier for climate change. You know, our, our kind of natural human biases that are surmountable, but, you know, universal. And those who understand the first three, well, tend to frame them in, in terms of a vicious cycle. So that our unhappiness drives, for instance, consumerism, which drives the climate crisis, which drives stress and anxiety and more unhappiness, which can lead to, rather than action, actually switching off more consumerism, more unsustainable behavior in, in a loop. It's been called by some a, a breakdown loop, but we can also switch this into a breakthrough loop. We can intervene in various ways. And, my, and one of the ways in which we can do this is through mindfulness and compassion. So I'm gonna skip some slides here because I'm just, I'm wanting to you know, have some time for questions. So um, the story that we're, that we're telling having done this research is that the most common thread amongst the way in which policymakers and experts frame this is that the, the that at the root of the climate crisis is a relationship crisis that actually it's a disconnection from each other and from nature and further from ourselves so um i'll unpack what that means in, in a moment and, and so, so, so to, to sort of combat this disconnection, we need to reconnect. That's the most primary thing that we need to do in order to um, address the inner dimension of the climate crisis. Hang on, I can't see my own slides. Hang on. Um, so the, the inner dimension is basically ignored, has been ignored for 50 years. Yesterday, no, sorry, on, uh, where are we? On Monday, an IPCC report, that's the International Panel on Climate Change, the part of the UN that looks at the evidence and releases the reports that we act upon, um, released a report for the first time using the phrase inner outer sustainability, using the, talking about mindsets, talking about mental health, and two of the references mental, uh, mentioned mindfulness. So it's the first time the IPCC have really referenced the inner 
outer connection. Uh, and so it's a watershed moment. But so far, these has been neglected. Scholars, activists, and now the IPPCC have begun to identify that the story of disconnection as a, is a common thread of our sustainability crises. That's not to say that we, we, have, been, we have actually been disconnected. We are thoroughly interconnected. We, we inter-are, we inter-be, in the words of Thich Nhat Hanh. But what is lacking is, in the, is this inner dimension, an understanding or a feeling of connection and the resulting values and human behaviors that would come from that. I'm sure you can see how mindfulness and compassion have something to say here. Because we are disconnected not only from others and from the environment, but from ourselves. We're unconscious of our emotions, our bodies and our values a lot of the time. And these forms of disconnection interrelate. A little example here is that empathy is, is, is underpinned is, is, by our body awareness. In order to understand others, we're actually feeling ourselves. We, 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 feel, we feel how our body responds. We get signals from our body that, that help us to, to perceive the emotions of others. And so, so poor body awareness means poor empathy. And, and therefore poor relationships and poor collaboration and poor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's all interrelated. So we explore in this document, um, the cognitive and emotional foundations of connection, focusing on mindfulness and compassion as powerful enablers of reconnection. We draw upon the emerging evidence base, linking inner and outer sustainability, which is you know, developing now, but is still at an early, early stage and also the broader academic literature on pro-environmental impact of mindfulness and compassion. And uh, I synthesized the evidence um, from the wider evidence, you know, literature and from our own research. And what we've done is, um, oh, hang on, this is the same slide again. You don't wanna see that. Uh, and we, we break down our document into two chapters. One is the fundamentals of con uh, connection. So this is the ways in which um, human connection is always important, has always been important throughout human history. And the ways in which mindfulness, compassion as natural human capacities, whether you cultivate them or even heard of them, are always, uh, are always important. That's the, first, that's the first chapter. And we thread through, um, you know, we, we link it to, the, to sustainability all the way. But then in the second chapter, we particularly look at the ways in which um, we are that our disconnection, our endemic disconnection, contributes to this crisis, and how restoring conscious connection with mindfulness and compassion can help. So, you know, wanting to wrap up fairly soon, I'll just um, say that, um, yeah, this in this first chapter we show humans possess the capacity for deep conscious connection with self, others, and nature. These aren't nice to haves, but fundamental aspects of our functioning and flourishing but the faculties that serve these relationships are too often deprioritized, underdeveloped and neglected. We break this chapter into three, three parts, three, three sections, mind, mind, body, mind, body, heart, trying to underpin, sorry, trying to highlight from the very beginning that these things aren't separate. We're just sort of layering them up in the kind of narrative, but actually we are one big uh, mind, body, heart system. And we're also a bio, psycho, social being. We really don't, we really emphasize that this is not just, you know, individuals making the change that needs to happen, but we really look at how our biology, our bodies, yeah, um, and, and our psychology, and our, and, our, and our social structures and culture are all interrelated.
Um, so within Mind, you know, like the agency document I, sh I showed you earlier, we look at reclaiming attention, increasing receptivity, perspective taking, embodiment, the importance of connecting to the body that I mentioned earlier. The, um, the fundamental uh, aspects of our interpersonal neurobiology, how our threat responses uh, work, how we fight, fight or freeze in response to threat, how this relates to climate change. We look at uh, the prevalence of trauma in society or nervous system dysregulation um, or chronic stress and how that exacerbates some of the problems that we see in, 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 in sort of like um, uh, perennially activated threat response systems but that make relationship and collaboration difficult. And then we move into the domain of the heart, the vital importance of emotional intelligence, empathy, social perspective taking, understanding the motives of others and how mindfulness, and mindfulness underpins those before intro introducing compassion itself, the jewel of our evolutionary inheritance. We look at you know, compassion training and we look at the, you know, how, how that relates to, to mindfulness um, and how compassion for nature and for others and self-compassion are all, are all um, fundamentals. Before turning to connection in a time of crisis, um, our modern neglect and ignorance of connection have led us to this emergency um, and that we need to reconnect to, um, to address it. Um, that this is both about responding to the climate crisis as well as being more resilient to it. So mitigating it and addressing the conditions that have brought it about. Um, these, are, these are not separate propositions. We do this in three sections. The first one is staying with the trouble. So this is perseverance, the role of mindfulness uh, how, and the role of mindfulness and compassion can have in, in, in helping us to remain engaged. This, um, this involves um, turning towards the difficult, which mindfulness practice is, is all about. This involves psychological resilience and actually positive emotions, like helping us to, to be nourished, helping us to feel, feel hope and optimism and love. These things are equally important as dealing with anxiety and grief and fear. Then we look at sort of the, the felt, the, the embodied felt understanding of a joined up world. We look at worldviews. We look at the role of polarization and how we combat that. And we look at nature connection itself, the importance of connecting to nature. For instance, those who have a high level of nature connection are twice as likely to exhibit pro-environmental behaviors as those without a, a, a strong connection to nature. And then finally, we look at intention and action. We, um, again, this is about, you know, autopilot, stimulus and response, or sorry, no, responding, not reacting. So once we've, you know, tuned into our values, um, oh, sorry, it's that, and it's also the inner compass, developing an understanding of our values and, um, uh, Yes, and acting accordingly. So I think I've got these here. I could have done that a bit easier there. So yes, our third section in, in, includes the inner compass, intentional action, but also wiser wanting. We look at consumerism and we look at mindfulness's role in generating insight. Insight into what makes us happy. Insight into patterns of distress and joy and, 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 and the potential for it to challenge our assumptions about those things to make us sort of just wiser about where contentment and life satisfaction 
really lies, or rather lies more of the time, um, once, we once we get to a certain level of material comfort. So um, in conclusion, uh, a critical dimension of the climate crisis has been excluded from the prevalent view. Physical practical solutions are important, but the fact that but the, the call for them, the appetite for them, the innovation that's required, the collaboration that's needed depends wholly upon capacities of human mind and heart that have been absent from mainstream theories of change. And that needs to be addressed. And mindfulness and compassion are two of the leading things, two of the leading types of interventions that are being considered in that, in, in that new area. And quoting from the conclusion here, myriad broken relationships constitute the climate crisis. And this report has introduced some of the ways in which mindfulness and compassion as trainable foundational capacities can support us to repair our bonds of conscious connection with ourselves, with each other, with the natural world. And as I mentioned, this is a policy report, this one. So this is us stepping forwards with a bit more confidence and going to policymakers uh, many of whom we've interviewed and actually, you know, are um, colleagues of ours, really, like Caroline Lucas in the UK, the Green MP. She's quoted in the report. She's one of our interviewees. But also we have Green MPs or, you know, uh, members of the European Parliament. We have um, a very senior politician from Canada, from Canada and others from North America um, who have helped us with this. And we're going to go to them. We're going to say, OK, we think you should actually act on this now. And we look at education, we look at research, we look at mainstreaming this into different areas of public life. So thank you very much. Um, we have 10 minutes or so for questions if you have them. Uh, you can find out more about us at the mindfulnessinitiative.org, um, uh, about me at my website and follow us on Twitter and sign up for our newsletter at bit.ly forward slash mi underscore news. Thank you very much. Back Thank you. you, Jamie. So we have a few questions. And um, in order to get to as many as possible, I'm going to read them out, but I'll try to name the person that has asked them. Um, so we have one from Robert Rauch, and apologies if I say anyone's name incorrectly in advance. Um, who says, can you say something about how your work may have approached barriers from groups who appear to have closed minds to climate crisis? Um, well, we've only just, we're just getting going, um, talking about the climate crisis. You know, we've been on, we've been on listening mode and research mode, writing mode. Today is the second day <laughs> that I have been talking about this work, so I'll give you a chance. Um, you know, but having said that, you know, when I worked for a climate change campaign, when people ask you, well, what, so what do you do? And you say, oh, I, I work for a climate change campaign. Sure enough, they'll tell you what they think about climate change. And so you become a kind of, a, you know, a, a researcher, one, one person research thing. And I have to say, you know, I learned a lot about denial and I learned a lot about repression. And, and, and the various other coping and defense mechanisms that we have in order to keep the, the magnitude of this at arm's length. And, um, and so I've done a lot of talking to people and trying to uh, edge them towards openness, um, but it's, 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 really, it's really tricky. That's why practices like this are important. 
There's one story, however, that is a secondhand story. This isn't mine, but this is from um, leading American workplace mindfulness teacher, Jeremy Hunter. He said that um, he was in a class one day and he was talking about the climate crisis as a kind of context. And then someone put their hands up and said, like, Jeremy, I, I object to you uh, using extremist propaganda in this mindfulness class. Um, referring to the climate crisis, because this guy was a Republican financier, he thought the climate crisis was ex extremist propaganda and it was a hoax, etc. And, you know, Jeremy had to manage that. But they became friends, Jeremy and this, this, this financier. And then a few years later, I think Jeremy said two or three years later, he was having lunch with this guy. And, and this guy just in the middle of the lunch put his knife and fork down and just said, you know, Jeremy, I am so scared about the world that our kids are going to inherit because of this climate crisis or this ecological thing uh, and jeremy had to say you know you know do you realize that you know a couple of years ago you objected to my, my extremist propaganda um and jeremy it, like like i did for my own self you know jeremy was saying that it was his mindfulness practice that shifted shifted that guy's view that's the best i can do right now to that answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Um, so we've had a couple of questions about inequality, bias and social justice, one from Wei Zhao and one from Nick. Um, this also came up yesterday. So I guess it's a it's a topic people are interested in. So how might mindfulness relate to inequality? Um, what's it affect regards to bias and social justice? Yeah, a really important question. Um, and we, we addressed this in the agency document. Um, so take a read of that for probably a more detailed answer with references, etc. Um, but we point towards um, the evidence, the very, you know, very early evidence, to be fair, that mindfulness does mitigate social identity biases. So both in terms of race and, and age-related related biases, one, one, one experiment looked at. Um, and there are ways in which a more that if the kind of the bell curve of mindfulness and compassion in society shift a little bit everyone was a little bit more you know uh, aware open curious um rather than seeing the world not as it is but as they think it is then that will mitigate some of the biases that relate to that you know uh, projecting of our views onto onto experience um and so you know point towards the work of Rhonda McGee particularly Ruth King, but now, you know, uh, many others coming through in that, in, in that regard. Um, it's early days, but, but I'm hopeful. And the Mindfulness Initiative will be investing in this area. So there's, there, there are a number of questions. There's who is practicing mindfulness? And, and, and uh, particularly in, you know, in white Western, in white uh, dominated, um, but predominantly uh, white Western countries, there is a there is a conversation about who who who's coming to classes, what how accessible is teaching, etc. That there's that conversation. There's also the conversation about how mindfulness can help with inclusion and equality in society. Um, and and the mindfulness initiative is going to be trying to take a lead or at least facilitating that conversation over the next two or three years. And we're going to be appointing uh, a policy lead for that. Thank you, Jamie. Um, aware of time, so maybe uh, one more. 
Um, Felix asks, and it's a very practical question. I think it's it, you know a helpful way to maybe close, um, which is what practice do you recommend to society, but I guess also to us individually for reconnection. My my message to society is practice something. That's the first message. I'll come to you know you're obviously all here because you're practicing something that's probably like mindfulness as well as other things, and I'll come to a more detailed answer. But the first message for society is that we should be cultivating ourselves, or rather cultivating capacities of heart and mind in some way. Mindfulness practices for some people, compassion for some people, there are, there are other things that we could be doing. But it's missing for most people's understanding. They don't even know it's possible. And policymakers certainly don't think it's, you know, you know an, an important thing. So I say to people like, whatever you practice, practice something. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's becoming clear from the evidence base that the care and compassion and positive affect part of mindfulness practice is critical, is crucial for the shift in worldviews, the shift in sort of pro-social behavior and intentions. So um, that's often transmitted in a mindfulness course implicitly. So it's held by the teacher and it's sort of like, you know, you know suggested and, but it needs to become more explicit in the, so that it isn't missed. And so I would say for this group of people who are already into mindfulness, I would say compassion. Thank you, Jamie. I think that gives us a very clear direction. Um, so, you know, it's, it's getting to the end. Thank you so much again, Jamie. I think this, you know, so much here, um, it's because so much was shared, especially invite people if they would like to, you know, the recording will be available on the OMC's website. You're very welcome to go back to it in the next few days. I'm going to post a series of links in the chat now um, so that you, you can access that recording if, if my computer wants to cooperate. Yes, it does. Okay. Um, Okay, I'll do that in a second. So um, just a reminder that, you know, we have a mindfulness session daily run by the OMC Monday to Friday, 7 to 7.30 p.m. UK time. We cultivate their mindfulness, compassion, all the things that Jamie has been um, mentioning. So if you want to do that in a group, you're very welcome to join there free and you can register in one of the links that I've shared. Um, on the topic that Jamie shared, there is going to be a one-day workshop held uh, sometime in the future by Leanne, who's the colleague of one of the people Jamie mentioned, Chris Namjidi, on mindfulness and climate change. Again, I'm going to post the links again. I've shared the link there if you do want to register. Otherwise, just check the OMC's website. Um, and I've also shared the link to the Mindfulness Initiatives publications. I want to say again, thank you to Jamie um, for all the work that you're doing. Not always easy, but um, very, very necessary. And uh, thank you to everyone for joining us today. 